Communicating statistics effectively can be difficult. It can sometimes be hard to know how much information someone needs in order to understand a particular set of numbers. Jargon can be another stumbling block to clearly communicating what a statistical finding means. Communicating stats clearly is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me are regular panelists John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, Professor Emeritus in Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Kevin McConway. McConway is Emeritus Professor of Applied Statistics at the Open University in the UK, where he taught statistics mainly to adult students in a wide range of disciplines. He's developed a strong interest and involvement in stats in the media and was an advisor for 11 years and occasional contributor to the BBC radio program, more or less. He's worked with and helped train journalists in understanding and communicating stats, often through the UK's Science Media Centre, where he's a member of the advisory committee. His research interests include Bayesian methods, applications of statistics in the life sciences, as well as stats in the media. McConway recently co-authored a piece for Significance magazine with David Spiegelhalter, offering advice for how statisticians can communicate well with journalists. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. Nice to be here. Can you just talk about what propelled this particular piece for significance? Yeah, well, it's quite a long story. I think the original initiative for it, the original idea for doing it came from David. But um, what happened was that we'd both been commenting a lot on statistics. I mean, we both comment on statistics in the media a fair amount anyway, but there's been so much more in the way of statistical content, important statistical content in the media uh, during the pandemic that we've both been doing a huge lot of it. And part of what we do in that is, I suppose you'd call it support one another. You know, we'd occasionally get in touch and say, how's it going? What have you been doing? Um, We collaborated on a couple of things where, you know, more technical things. And then David said at one time, look, I've got this idea that we've learned uh, quite a lot about this. We already knew a bit about it beforehand. We ought to put something together to help other statisticians to be effective in working with the media um, in relation to COVID or in relation to anything else. And then this sort of sat on a back burner for a bit as these things do there. We kept being asked about sort of live questions of various sorts, but we eventually put it together and it was usual sending things back and forward in the way in the way of drafts. Uh, we originally weren't that sure where we'd put it. And we actually originally first put it out as a blog on, on, on David's blog site, but then we thought, this is the sort of thing that might be of interest for yeah. Significance magazine. So uh, we sent it off the editor, got it in there, and it's actually been uh, reblogged and repeated either from the blog, mostly from the blog version, in various other sites, one at the London School of Economics and, and, and various things like that. So it's got a fair bit of exposure, uh, which I think is good, uh, partly because I think it'll get Dave and me off the hook and other statisticians <laughs> might, might join in if we tell them, look, you know, come in, the, the, the water's lovely. Uh, <laughs> don't just leave it up to those two old old fellows you know you know I, I i don't discount enlightened self-interest that's a that's a brilliant that's a, that's brilliant you know in terms of a publication i've not heard that very often but this is wonderful i i, I really enjoyed this piece in significance and i i, I liked how you Thanks. framed this story and i that you grouped it in terms of general tips then you followed up with kind of particular points 
for statisticians, and then you brought you closed it up with kind of relationships with the media. And I, I thought it might be interesting for, to give you a chance to kind of just to you know comment on on why were these the salient features that you highlighted and you wanted to share with the, the general reader. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, I can't go through the the, the, the whole yeah. detail. I'll be here all night, but um, <laughs> it's. Uh, I mean, it's things like there are some general points that. I think we wanted to put across because they apply whenever you're talking to the media. Uh, actually, several people have, have responded to this by saying, look, even the ones for statisticians are kind of good general points anyway, but they, yeah. they are quite particular, I think. But the, the, the general ones are, are, are things like, you know, the journalists are not talking to you because you're their best friend. I mean, you may be their best friend, but that's not why they're talking to you. They're talking to you because they want to find out something that you know and they don't, or they want to use what you say to put together a story or something like that. And, you know, there, there are sort of ways in common they have of working like that. And if you haven't worked with journalists before, you may be unaware of what they are. So the, the, actually, it's very strange. The, the very first point we have on there is get media training. And David was extremely insistent on that. David's very keen on media training. I have never had formal media training of the sort that he's, he's talking about. I mean, this is all kind of odd. I mean, I have had some media training because the Open University, where I, I used to work, um, teaches at a distance. And we used to teach through broadcast media. And oh. we had to be trained, I mean, I'm going by a lot of years now, to... Um, how to interview people, not how to be interviewed, but how to interview people, um, how to tell stories in uh, in a, a TV program and things like that. Uh, you know, we had a really abbreviated training, but I've had some through that. On a lot of like non-standard media training, I think I think it's helped me over the years to understand how, how this goes and to understand some of the, oh, this is putting it a bit, bit rudely, but tricks that journalists can sometimes come up with in order to get you to say what they want in their story because I have to admit to my shame I've done a bit of this myself <laughs> once or twice a long time ago but then we get into particular points about what statisticians need to do because I think there are things about what statisticians need to do which is essentially to stop acting like a statistician you know the first one we got is sound human you know sound synthetic <laughs> sound uh, and and yeah. It's strange how many statisticians can't do that when they're talking formally, mm. even though, mm. you know, if you talk to them in a pub or something like that, they're perfectly fine at it. It's just they feel they can't do it. They shouldn't be doing it in that context. And we wanted to get across that you shouldn't be like that. You know, it's more just like talking to your mates, except you're talking about numbers and you're probably talking about something that's more important than most conversations with your mates in, in, in some sense. Another thing that statisticians are great at but it's hopeless when it comes to working with the media are being sort of hypercritical uh, you know going mm. through being really skeptical well i suppose this is a good study on the whole but you know what about <laughs> what about this you know there's something dodgy about this sampling here and uh, you could have done this this better and and so on i mean it's alleged in the uk that that is why we don't get so many research grants as say pure mathematicians do i've no idea if this is true nobody's really looked but uh, what is said is if there's a grant panel and it's full of pure mathematicians they say oh that's a wonderful 
piece of work about just about everything. Whereas if it's statisticians, we say, well, it's kind of okay, but, uh, <laughs> you know, the sample size could be a bit larger or, you know, have you thought about this or is that the right test? And therefore we don't get the, we don't get the funding. So that's kind of a bad thing. So we've got to keep that under control. And the other thing, and this has been so important, I think, particularly during COVID, because the numbers are so important to everyone's lives in so many ways, and the journalists want anyone they can get to comment on them. It's keeping out of other people's arguments, being very careful. I'm much more careful, I think, than I mm. used to be on saying, look, I don't have the right expertise to talk about mm. this. I mean, one example of this is I, I'm not an epidemic modeler. It's not that I know nothing about it. I have taught basic epidemic modeling to undergraduates. I have done quite a lot of mathematical and statistical stochastic modeling on areas other than this in ecology and things like that. So I kind of do know what's involved and that knowledge of what's involved is enough to tell me that I shouldn't be making expert comment on this. You know, I'm not enough of an expert. And I think one problem that's been happening during the, the, the pandemic is that people who do know about modeling in a certain field have said, well, I can do modeling, I'll do modeling. And they, they know even less than I do about the ins and outs of epidemic modeling, and therefore they just get it wrong, really badly wrong. Um, so I know some climate modelers who've done really good mathematical modeling in this. I also know some who've done appalling nonsense. I, I won't give you any names, <laughs> but that's kind of the way it works. But I just keep out of that. If it's modeling, I say, go away, ask somebody else who knows about this. And that's really important it's even more important to give out the politics and um mm. that is so difficult i haven't always succeeded and, and and then there are kind of points at the end of the article about how to keep in with the media how you've kind of got to i was going to say make friends i mean i do have journalists who are good friends i mean some of whom i've worked with for, for many years but you have to have a decent relationship with them and that means you have to give them what they want up to a point as long as it doesn't overstep the boundaries. If they want to know about something, they probably need to know about it maybe, I mean, sometimes in the next half hour, because that's when their deadline is. And all right, you can always politely say, no, I just can't do that. Uh, but if you can help them, you know, I've retired now from my daytime job, so I can help them quite a lot of the time. I try to do that if I can, because I think that will mean I can maybe help them keep on track and not make big statistical blunders, as yes. does happen sometimes. Um, so I, anyway, I mean, that, that's about it. That, that is a quick run through that's of great. the 12 points in Thank the article. Uh, Kevin, one of the things in early in the significance piece was, the, uh, was something that I think uh, struck me because of how much has changed over time. And it has to do with statisticians and scientists and other experts should be asking to, be, to do their questions via email. So they have kind of more control of the answers. And I can remember when, we, as a journalist or uh, many editors, when email first really hit big, it was you weren't allowed to do it. You weren't allowed to get an email interview. You had to do them in person first. And if you couldn't do it in person, you had to make a call. And then gradually over time, it became in person first, uh, over the phone second, and an email only if that's the only way you could get it if somebody was way far away or if, if COVID's going on, of course, you have to do that. But uh, uh, I came to become, I came to understand more from the source's point of view. I liked the idea of giving them a little bit more control over 
quotes, especially if it was a complicated deal. I mean, the reason you, you didn't want to do that is you wanted to be able to spring a question on. You might get something in a person-to-person -person interview that you wouldn't get in an email that would be sort of more, it would contribute, it would make a better story. I think that, that was one of the big reasons. And Rosemary might want to comment on this as well. <laughs> I would say I I think I think the issue of of control in conversations is really interesting mm. uh because obviously as a journalist you want to make sure that a source is not feeding you a line without being able to follow up and ask them mm. you know to to show their work right like that's part of the whole point of journalism is to verify and so the in-person interview has been so important to sort of be able to do that verification in that moment but I think the issue of of email interviews and letting control land with the source is, you know, in an American context, particularly, which Richard and I are in, is very difficult sort of space to be in. Has, I don't know, have, have you found that journalists in the UK that you've worked with have been hesitant or resistant to, to, to just sending you questions via email or is that sort of loosening up a bit? I think it's hugely variable. I mean, if I can kind of give two extreme examples. Yes, I've been involved in cases where, um, you know, all that happens is you get a call from a researcher or the journalist himself or, or an email from the researcher saying, I want to talk to you about, and then there's like three words, uh, you know, the latest case estimates or hospitalizations or something. Um, is that okay? Uh, you know, can I call you in, in half an hour or something? And, and that, that is, well, it's an email contact, but it doesn't give me any control or and really any knowledge of what they want to talk about. But then at the other extreme, and this is kind of odd, it's people who essentially, I really don't know what I feel about this, but people who essentially want to use anything I say and any comments they can get in order to write a very long article, which is going to go on a web page where the aim is partly to inform people but partly to make sure that they read through this very long web page. It's full of all kinds of st sorts of stuff. It's full of ads. And, you know, if they get comments from 10 Kevin McConways and David Spiegelhorders and whoever, um, you know, they might get a few, few, few more things in the way of advertising money. But I think in between is what happens. I can think of very few decent interviews or decent, you know, in encounters with journalists I've been involved with, which have been entirely done in email. Yeah. Usually, and, you know, it doesn't, to a great extent feel like control from my part. The way the way I would see it is, yeah, there's a bit of control there, but it is me telling the journalists what they ought to check. That is that is part of it. That is part of it. And um, you know, if so if somebody sort of sprung a question on me, um, you know, that I felt I could answer, uh, you know, what do you think is going to happen to the hospitalization rate in the next month? I mean, I might just not answer it. Or I might come up with an answer that is off the top of my head because I haven't thought about it before. And they that may produce a good story, but it's not an accurate story in terms of what the data say. So if they said to me before, I'm going to ask you about, you know, what, how many hospitalizations do you think there'd be in the next month? I can at least have thought about that and give them an informed response yeah. that they can cross-check with somebody else. So I, I feel it's kind of good on both sides. And my impression is that's why, that's probably why they do it. It speeds things up. It gets to the point quicker. It's a bit like what will happen with more over the, over, over the, um, since, since COVID began than it used to before. Um, 
being interviewed by a radio journalist or uh, a general purpose radio journalist or for the main TV news or something, something like that. You know, there's this sort of great panchadrum health editor or something is actually going to interview you. But of course, they don't fix this all themselves. They have a researcher who has the chat and they have the chat, they have the email and everything. So it's kind of more like the equivalent of the chat with a researcher, I feel, than, than you know, me controlling the interview, me taking over the interview. And I do think on the whole, it makes it work better. And, you know, I, if they don't want to do that, I'm, I'm fine with just going ahead with an interview. It's, it, to some extent, this is done because that's what the journalists have wanted. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking to The Open University's Kevin McConway. Kevin, there's a, a, a part in the piece as you're wrapping it up where you tell the, the statisticians in particular not to be afraid to complain. And I wonder, when earlier in the piece, there was a, a point about not nitpicking. And I wonder, how do you suggest, right, a statistician who has been interviewed by a journalist uh, and maybe... You know, it's not gone as well. Like, how did how do we how do you navigate that situation, and know when you're nitpicking versus having like a real complaint? And then, how do you sort of navigate the complaint process without without burning bridges, right? Because no one wants to burn bridges, right? So I just kind of wonder what your thoughts are around that. Yeah, I think it. I think it's a difficult call. Um, I think David and I have different attitudes towards complaining. We do. We do both complain. Uh, I mean, this is a ridiculous overgeneralization, which I shouldn't do, but I think David's had to complain more than me because he's been produced more than I have. He's, um, you know, I, I haven't had quite such bad things happen to me in terms of misleading headlines. Well, not recently, not recently. The, the, about the first encounter I ever had with a journalist is going back more than 20 years. A journalist was actually writing a book and it was something to do with um, have we reached peak oil yet? And he asked me about some data analysis or something. And in passing, I made a comment which didn't represent what I what I what I actually meant at all. And of course, that was the only thing he printed in the accursed book. Um, and so after that, I've kind of been more careful. And and I didn't complain about that. I probably should have. But it's 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 more that, I mean, I will let something go if I think in the end it's not going to give a misleading impression to the journalist audience. So you, you know, if the journalist's getting a bit confused between new cases and, and and the existing stock of cases, and so they're saying something which is technically a bit wrong, uh, well, technically quite a lot wrong to be honest, but it's not giving an overall wrong impression of where the pandemic's moving. Let's say then. I might send them an email afterwards saying, look, you know, that's not quite right. But I, w I wouldn't complain to the editor or something like that. I would complain about the editor if I felt I was being misrepresented. I'd gone to the journalist first and that really didn't help. I, I mean, I've only done that once. And to be honest, I don't want to go into the details. It's a difficult thing to do. Um, the journalist in question did get back to me about something else after a sort of long break. But that's 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 kind of OK. I mean, it. it it's a difficult. It's a difficult call, though. I mean, you know, you know, it's not like a nice, quiet, even though you might get irate about it, discussion about what somebody put in a preprint on something very technical that only ten statisticians in the world are interested in. You know, this this is public stuff, and it's important. So I'd like to to, to follow up with one of the posts that you you had written related to viral load. And, and this is oh, a, that one. Yeah, yeah. Well, come on, it's too juicy not to talk about this. So, so there was this assertion about viral load associated with, with COVID, and and so then then as you as you're thinking about this, 
uh, it was a comparison of, of kind of young, young people, children versus adults. And there was an assertion that was made in this work that, that was made in some published work. And then you and, and your colleague responded in a reanalysis that kind of challenged it. And, and it sounded like that led to a, an ongoing debate for you. Or, and so I, I guess what, what engaged you with this story and what is the story? Right, okay, the story, this goes back um, to originally, let me get the date right, end of April last year. So uh, this was when, uh, you know, the first major wave of the pandemic was beginning to come down in Western European countries and if I remember rightly in the US as well, you know, things have been pretty bad and they were getting better and places had been locked down, severe lockdowns and so on. And there were discussions happening about how the lockdowns ought to be uh, ought to be relaxed. And one particular thing that came up, and I, I mean, I think it's right that it came up. It's very important is reopening schools because mm -hmm. people were very worried. You know, children have not been able to go to school for two months or something. When you think about it now, it sounds ridiculous. Only two months, <laughs> not much longer. But yeah, people were rightly concerned about this, and there was a debate going on in the UK about when school should reopen and whether they should be open for all ages and all this sort of stuff. And I know it was going on in the US as well. Um, and people would be quoting evidence on either side. They'd be saying things like, look, children don't get ill uh, or, you know, children very rarely get ill. Uh, others were saying, but they pass on infection to others. I mean, you know, I, I didn't rehearse all the details. Uh, about the only strong looking piece of evidence that was being passed about was this paper by a team in Germany led by a, a, a top German virologist, Christian Drosten. And um, this said, I mean, it said just what John said, it said it, it looked at data based on routine testing for a whole lot of um, people in Germany of different ages. It compared various different age groups and it said, actually, there aren't any differences between any of these pairs of age groups. And therefore, it, then it went on to the politics and it said, um, well, this means that this is relevant to the debate about re re reopening kindergartens and schools. And basically, we don't think you should because children could be just as infectious as adults. Now, um, we had, I mean, this was work with David Spiegelholter again. We, we came upon this because it was being mentioned so often. And we thought, well, we have a look. And then we thought, we'll have a look. And it's not right. It's mm. not right. Uh, now, it has to be said, we, we weren't the only people to say this wasn't right. Um, some German statisticians had looked to this. Leonhard Helt, who's a very, um, very, very eminent Swiss statistician, had looked at it. And they'd kind of come to the same conclusion that we eventually did, which was that actually what the data showed was that children did have a lower um, viral load, uh, so less likely to infect people than the older age groups. But it, this had been completely masked in the way that the people did the analysis, the German people did the analysis. They, they masked it by essentially comparing every group with every other, every other age group. And that, you know, sort of weakened the evidence for the particular age groups you were interested in so much that the whole thing disappeared. So anyway, we thought, what do we do about this? Uh, Shall we just put up another preprint or something? But no, we decided to blog about it, fair enough, and, and to tweet about the blog quite forcibly. So we did that. And this didn't actually happen until a month after the original preprint version of this paper came out. We put this thing out. And I mean, I speak German a bit, so I should have looked to see what was going on in Germany. And to be honest, I didn't really. I mean, I had a quick peer just as we were about to publish this thing. And so hang on, there seems to be quite a fuss about this paper in the German media already. What on earth's going on? So uh, 
the day after the thing came out, there we were very prominently discussed as you know great international stars of statistics, which maybe we are, maybe I don't think, I, well, I don't think I am, um, uh, uh, in Bildzeitung, which is a kind of German national tabloid, and uh, you know, biggest circulation, I think, in Germany. And, wow. um, and this was basically saying, oh, look, these very prominent and clever, you know, UK statisticians have pointed out that um, the analysis in this paper is just wrong from start to finish. I mean, it wasn't that bad. Well, it actually, it almost was that bad. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then they were on the phone to us for interviews. We got emails, you know, all this sort of stuff. Yeah, you can do it in English, etc. And at this point, we decided, you know, when we, we can't cope with this. You know, we, we'll give a statement. We gave a statement to the German Science Media Center to put out to the German press. Um, and meanwhile, the tweets went on and on and on. You know, these these people are saying that Drosten is an idiot. Um, um, Drosten therefore is an idiot and other people saying these people you know basically we were added to as supporters by people on all sides of this argument and this went on quite forcibly for for several weeks probably a couple of months um, what happened about the, the the preprint which is what it was it wasn't a published paper at the time was that they did revise it and came up with something much better that we on the whole approved of I think there's still a few sneaky things in it but never mind um, and uh, but the thing is, this still goes on. I still get likes on the tweets that I put out then. Um, I still get people commenting on things I say. I mean, we stopped tweeting pretty quick because it was all getting too heavy for us. I didn't shut everybody else up. You know, this this very morning I was writing a reply to, to, to something on Twitter that originally stemmed from this. And this, this is more than a year later. It just goes wow. on and on and on. And I think the problem was that, you know, like everything else in the pandemic, this has become so politicized, uh, you know, opinions are so divided that uh, and, and we didn't recognize that we were trying to say something helpful. And actually what happened was it caused a huge row. A paper by David's group in Cambridge uh, gave various things that you ought to do as a statistician when, you, when you're sort of, and this isn't advising the public, you know, how should you give advice? And one of the things he said is you should aim to inform rather than persuade. And that we were aiming to inform, but it came across as aiming to persuade. Mm. We were not aiming to persuade, but it's really difficult to, to, you know, if people have taken that you're making a political argument one way, it's really difficult to persuade them that you're not, because then they think you were arguing on the other side, you know, yeah. you can't win. It's best not to have started, but unfortunately we had started, it was too late. <laughs> yeah. Kevin, this reminds me, I mean, you, you brought up politics, but we, you know, this is come up in a, in a lot of our podcasts in the last couple of years about not so much politics, but the sort of anti-science, anti-data um, arguments that are in our culture and you know, people doubting this. And you talk about, you know, what what is the statistician's role in, in an age like this where you, you know, you, you it's frustrating, I think, that that people don't accept you know, basic science that they they trust their gut. You know, I, mean, I just that just doesn't feel right. Uh, what's the statistician's responsibility here? Um, I, it seems like you're doing a lot, but I think you know, just just talking to the media, I think, uh, and encouraging other statisticians to do that. But is there more that can be done? Well, I maybe i start off by saying why i do a lot of this through the media because you know some of the statisticians would 
you know, actually write more pieces in the media themselves, would have very prominent blogs, would be tweeting many times a day and all this sort of stuff. Um, I've chosen not to do that. And that's a fairly deliberate choice. And that's because I feel that, um, I mean, despite the rise of, of, of what some people would call the non-mainstream media, you know, um, social media, very, things happening behind the scenes and things on that. Uh, I think there's reasonably good evidence, and I do like evidence, to show that most people in, in my country, and as I understand the US as well, still get most of their news through traditional media, broadcast media, um, you know, even the printed press, things like that. And therefore, if I want to get my ideas across to people, I f think I ought to do it through the media because the media are better at telling stories than I am on the whole and uh, the media have bigger audiences than I'm likely to get on the whole and so that's 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 why I do it that way but you know there are other things I think that statisticians can do um, statisticians have to avoid being too dogmatic because I think it's a strength in avoid avoiding too much dogmatism uh, you know there are things where actually we know exactly what the number is and you know there's no uncertainty about it but they're really rare they're they're really rare and one thing that I think has contributed to I, I wouldn't say it's a cause but contributed to this sort of anti-data anti-science um, view that, that that's about I mean you're quite right Richard this is really growing is that people feel that science that 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 data has has overclaimed and that's because the uncertainty that's there is simply not discussed enough so uh, you know this particular this particularly happens with some politicians but it's not just politicians you know if there's a number that, you know some somebody comes up with an estimate of something and the estimate might be a bit dodgy and there's a huge margin of error and everything like that but they just tell you oh it's 10 percent it's 12.2 percent or something and and, and that be an end of it and then um people see later people are not stupid people see later that it's not 12.2 percent it's quite a lot different from that um now if somehow it had been got across in the first place that that might be your best guess but there's a lot of uncertainty about it. It all depends how you look at it. It all depends on what the assumptions are, what the model is, all that kind of stuff. Um, they might have a better view of it. They might not be so willing to throw it away. So one thing that I do try to do when I'm commenting for the media, when I'm writing for the Science Media Center, is always to try to get something in about the uncertainty. It doesn't always get into the media story. In fact, it very often doesn't get into the media story. Um, you wouldn't believe how many ways I've tried of, of, of getting across in a way that will be reported. Look, here's a confidence interval or a credible interval or something, and look, it's really wide. Um, and therefore, we actually don't know what's going on. Uh, and therefore, we ought to act as if we don't really know what's going on, rather than pretending what, what we do. But I, I, I don't think I'm getting through. I, I'm not getting through as much as I'd like to. I think that's it. Maybe I'm getting through enough, but I'm not sure that I am, which is a worry. Um, I mean, one, one, one example of that, which is really strange, which is that there is a national estimate here of the R number, you know, the reproduction number. Um, but it is never, I mean, this is produced by, by this sort of big committee called uh, SAGE of, of scientists that are advising the government. Um, and they never give a single number. They always give a range. Um, I'd argue their ranges aren't wide enough they don't incorporate enough of the uncertainty but they always do give a range you know maybe i mean for instance today they're saying for england it's 1.0 to 1.2 so increasing but you know they're not saying it is 
at either end of this range. They're just saying it's probably somewhere in that range. Um, now, what happens in what happens is last week they said it was 1.0 to 1.1. Now that could mean it's unchanged. It could still be 1.05 or something like that, still within the range. Um, but no, this is uniformly reported as it's gone up. We're doomed, you know. And and and, and it's it's just people don't really get that we can't tie it down that closely. Nobody can tie it down that closely. It'd be very nice to know exactly what the R number is, but you can't. And and, and I, I, I think the combined effort of, I'm not claiming any particular credit for myself, but um, scientists and statisticians in this has actually caused our government here to be more careful about reporting when they're certain and when they're uncertain and if that has actually happened i, I mean it has whether it was us or not i think that is a big gain uh, before they were just really you know they give you the number and that was a number in, in some cases it was the wrong number the minute they said it uh, <laughs> now they're more cautious and people are criticizing them for that and uh, your political commentators is saying oh don't they know well of course they don't know they never did know actually <laughs> Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks very much. You're welcome. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts, or other places where you find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu. Or check us out at statsandstories.net and be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.